The Old Testament reading is Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. If you are visiting this morning, uh, we are working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. And so this morning we are at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, But believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, this morning I want to begin by summarizing the flow of thought that uh, we have already seen as we have gone uh, through uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, I want to summarize uh, what Paul has uh, already uh, told us in these first few chapters. So first of all, uh, Paul's argument is that all people... Uh, Jew and Gentile are guilty uh, before God of sin and therefore are subject to God's uh, righteous indignation, his condemnation, his wrath. So all people are guilty. Uh, Secondly, no human being, uh, neither Jew nor Gentile, 
can be saved from this wrath of God that is upon us because of our sin. We cannot be saved by anything that we do. We cannot be saved by keeping the commandments of God. Uh, Next, uh, praise God. This is the good news. This is the gospel that God has provided for us. uh, A righteousness apart from the law. A righteousness that is is his very own righteousness uh, by which we can be saved uh, from uh, the wrath that is upon us. And that righteousness is found in the Son of God Uh, Jesus Christ. And so we are justified. We are made right with God. We are forgiven on the basis of the righteousness, not of ourselves, but of another, of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ. And that righteousness becomes ours. It is counted as ours only on the basis, by the grace of God, of, of us coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not on the basis of anything that we do or anything that we bring to God that would count in his sight as righteousness. And so we are, and this is, uh, this is the crucial uh, point that the apostle is making. This is what the Spirit is declaring to us in Romans so far. We are justified. We are forgiven. We are counted righteous. We are made right with God by faith alone, apart from works. Uh, that is the the gospel uh, that, that we are hearing from the Word of God, from Paul's letter to the, to the Romans. And finally, again, summarizing what we've seen so far, uh, this, this gospel, this salvation uh, in the gospel is available to all people, Jew and Gentile, who uh, repent of sin, uh, turn to Christ, and come to Him in faith. So that is the argument that uh, Paul has been Uh, giving us uh, so far as we have been going through uh, Romans. Uh, We are saved from the wrath of God, not on the basis of what we do or our works, but entirely by putting our hope and faith in Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine uh, for a moment that uh, what we've seen so far in Romans, uh, I want you to imagine it as a kind of courtroom drama. And so the Apostle Paul, he is arguing his case before the judge and jury of justification by faith alone apart from works. And his opponents, his Jewish opponents, they are arguing their case that we are justified by keeping God's law. And where we are this morning, chapter 4, verse 1, if this is a courtroom drama, this is the point in the trial in which Paul says to the judge, Your Honor, I would like to call to the witness stand Abraham, and you hear the gallery gasp with disbelief, and the doors open to the courtroom, and in strides the great patriarch Abraham to take his stand. That may be a little corny, but I think that image does capture something of the significance of what Paul is doing here in chapter 4. Abraham, Abraham. This is the father of the Jewish people. It was was with Abraham that God made his covenant, uh, not only to him, but to his descendants, uh, to be their God, to save them, to make them his people. It was to Abraham that God gave uh, the sign of circumcision as a seal, as a testimony to the truth of these covenant promises. Uh, The Jews prided themselves 
that they were the children of Abraham. And so, as the great father of the nation of Israel, there's a sense in which what was true for Abraham must be true for all the Jews who are descended from Abraham. And so everything would hang in this drama. Everything would hang upon the testimony of Abraham. What does he say? And the question that is put before him is this. Abraham, were you justified by works of the law? Were you justified by circumcision? Or were you justified by faith alone? Now, we know what the answer is. As we'll see, Paul shows us. We hear from Abraham that he was justified by faith apart from works. But not only that, Abraham will show us that for that very reason, he is the father of all people, Jew and Gentile, who put their faith in Jesus for salvation. So as we look at this passage this morning, uh, our two lessons will be this. First of all, that we as Christians, we are saved by Abraham's faith. We are saved by Abraham's faith. And secondly, as believers in Christ, we are united in Abraham's fatherhood. So we'll consider Abraham's faith and then Abraham's fatherhood. Again, in verse one, uh, Paul calls to the witness stand, as it were, the patriarch Abraham, the father of Israel. And he asks him this question in verse one. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? And essentially, the question is, just as just as I put it earlier, was Abraham justified before God on the basis of his obedience, his circumcision, his working? Or was he justified, justified by faith alone, apart from works? And this is Paul's answer in verse 2. He says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Uh, now, uh, Paul is being very economical here with his, with his words, but this is, uh, this is the logic, this is the, the argument that he makes in verse 2. If, if Abraham was justified by works, then he could boast before God that he earned or merited his salvation, his justification. But since Abraham cannot make that boast before God, therefore, he is not justified by works. And then Paul, of course, he backs this up. He shows from Scripture why this is true. And so in verse 3, he quotes from Genesis chapter 15. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, We read from Genesis 15. Uh, This is the passage in Genesis in which the Lord uh, uh, appears, or I believe he he spoke to uh, Abram in a vision. And he made him this promise that he will have a son who will be his heir. And as a result of the offspring that will come from his son, uh, the descendants of Abraham will be as uh, numerous as the skies uh, in the night or the stars in the night sky. And of course, this promise seemed unbelievable to Abraham. It was incredible because Abraham was an old man at this time. His wife, Sarah, was an old woman at this time. But not only that, they were were not able to have children uh, until this time because Sarah was barren. However, however, despite how impossible, how incredible this promise seemed, Abraham believed. He believed. He entrusted himself to the Lord and to his word. 
that God is able to fulfill his promise. And therefore, because he believed in the Lord, God says, the word says, that his faith, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And so the patriarch Abraham, the father of the Jews, the one who received the sign of circumcision, Abraham also was justified by faith apart from works. And the faith that saved Abraham is the same faith that saves you and me. And that is, it is faith in the Messiah, that is the Christ, the coming Savior that God had promised his people even as far back as the Garden of Eden, that he would raise up one day to bring salvation to his people. Now, of course, Abraham's understanding of who the Christ would be and what he would do, it was not complete because he lived before the coming of Christ. He did not have that same full understanding of who Christ was, what exactly he did in order to accomplish our salvation that we enjoy because we live after the coming of Christ. But nevertheless, insofar as Abraham trusted in the Lord and believed his promises, insofar as Abraham no no doubt also knew of the promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, And insofar as God had already promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed, insofar as all of that was true, Abraham's faith was in the coming Christ. His faith was directed towards, it was the object of his faith was the coming Messiah. And Galatians confirms that this is the case when Galatians tells us that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. Uh, The gospel was preached to Abraham. But there's an important lesson for us here in the nature of the faith of Abraham in that he believed in Christ, the Christ to come. And that is this, that the only faith that can save us, the only belief that can save us is faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Abraham and every Old Testament saint who was saved, was saved on the basis of this hope and faith in the coming Christ. Every person today who is saved is saved by the same faith in the Christ who has already come. And so faith is not some kind of abstract, amorphous, vague thing that God counts to us as righteousness. Faith is not some, uh, or, or the faith that saves us is not faith in destiny, or in a higher power, or in the God or gods of other religions, or even in the God of the Bible, apart from Christ. But it is only as you come to the person of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was incarnate, who lived, who died, who suffered, who was resurrected, who is now at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. It is only as any sinner comes to Jesus, by faith, who believes in him, it is only by that faith are you saved. And so when we say that we are justified by faith, we are justified only by that faith that is in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, in Christ alone. Only he can save us. Jesus said, no one comes to me or no one comes to the Father except through me. In verses 4 and 5, Paul appeals to a very familiar reality uh, that we're all familiar with, 
uh, to underscore the graciousness of God's counting righteousness uh, to us apart from works. And so Paul says in verse four, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Uh, Some of you will be old enough to remember uh, the TV commercial uh, for the investment firm uh, Smith Barney. Uh, It featured this old, crusty English gentleman. And he looks into the camera and he says, as Smith Barney, they make money the old fashioned way. They earn it. And what Paul is saying here is when you work for your wages, you're making money the old fashioned way. You're earning it. Um, if you have a job and you get your paycheck, you don't go up to your boss and say, thank you. This is so gracious of you. This is so nice of you. You shouldn't have done this. No, you, you earn that money. You deserve it. It's yours as your due. But then in verse 5, Paul, he applies the inverse of that truth to the spiritual realm. And he says in verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what Paul means here is this, to the one who does not work, that means the one who does not work for righteousness before God, the one who is not working to establish his own righteousness before God, rather the one who entrusts himself by faith in Christ, his faith is counted as righteousness. And for that reason, then, the righteousness that he receives from God is not his wages, it is not his due, but it is a gift. It is freely given by God on the basis or or through the faith that he puts in Christ. And so God freely, he graciously, he mercifully counts his righteousness, the faith of the one who believes. Now we want to make a a distinction here or, or understand exactly what this means a little better. When Paul says in verse 5 that his faith is counted as righteousness, that does not mean that does not mean that somehow if you believe in Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, that somehow God considers that a righteous work that he then counts to you as righteousness. Rather what it means is this, that that faith, which is really the opposite of work, Faith is the opposite of work. It cannot be considered a work. But that this, that this faith, it is merely an instrument. And by the way, faith is a gift. It is a gift of God's grace. So we can't even take credit for our faith if we, if we wanted to. But faith is a mere instrument by which God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. So to say his faith was counted as righteousness means by faith, the righteousness of Christ was counted to him. Now, I use the word impute. Uh, last week, our, our big theological word was propitiation. Uh, today, our theological term is imputation. Imputation means that God credits to our account. He, he reckons to us. He counts towards us uh, the righteousness of Christ. Uh, he does not, in Christ, he does not see us as we are in ourselves. That is sinful and unclean. But in Christ, God sees us as those who are covered or clothed with that perfect righteousness of the Son of God. And so the righteousness by which we are justified, the righteousness that is the basis upon which we are right with God, by which we are forgiven, this is a righteousness that comes from without us. It is an outside righteousness that is counted 
as our very own. Sometimes it's called an alien righteousness because it does not come from within us. But it becomes ours through faith, and God imputes it to us. He, he, he credits our account, so to speak. He imputes the righteousness of Christ to us as though we ourselves were righteous in ourselves. Uh, as one author put it, our justification is not a change in character, but it is a change in status. And so the moment, the moment that you put your faith in Jesus, God looks upon you as you are in Christ. He, he considers you, he counts you as righteous, as holy, as sinless as Jesus himself. And in verse 5, Paul says one of the most amazing things you'll ever read in Scripture. This is one of the most remarkable uh, phrases, I think, in all of Scripture. He says in verse 5 that God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. Now, this is not what seemingly Scripture says to say elsewhere, because in Proverbs 17, 15, uh, the Word of God says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And yet, God justifies the ungodly. In Exodus 23, 7, the Lord himself says, I will not acquit the wicked. And yet, it says here that God justifies the ungodly. Not the righteous, the ungodly. Well, how can God do this? How can God justify a sinner? How can God justify the unrighteous and remain true to his own holy character? How can he do this and not enmesh himself in some hopeless contradiction? He does it by justifying the sinner. He does it by justifying the ungodly sinner for whom Christ lived and died. That's the key. It is because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the life that he lived, it is because God imputes that to you as your very own. He can truly, justly justify you, though you are ungodly and unrighteous and a sinner. It is because Jesus took your sin, your guilt upon himself, and he bore the penalty of the wrath of God upon the cross, and God imputes that to you as though you yourself paid for those sins. It is for that reason that God can justly justify you, a sinner. And so even though in ourselves we are far from the righteousness of God, we are truly in ourselves ungodly in our sin, nevertheless, in Jesus Christ, God counts you and I, counts you and me as righteous for his sake. He does the, the, what is seemingly impossible for him to do. He justifies the ungodly. Now, if we could go back to our, our picture of the courtroom drama. Um, Abraham has stepped down from the witness stand, and Paul calls his next witness to the stand, and it is none other than the great King David. Again, the gallery gasps in unbelief as David walks in to take, his, to take the witness stand. And David's testimony is exactly the same as Abraham's. He's saying the exact same thing. David speaks through the words of the psalm that he wrote, Psalm 32, Verses 7 and 8, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Again, uh, here is this, this truth of imputation. Well, in this case, it's non-imputation. 
The Lord does not count our sins against us, even though the Lord should, because of our sin and guilt, that should be imputed to us, that should be counted against us because it is ours. Nevertheless, God does not do that. He does not count our sin against us. Rather, he imputes your sin and my sin and our guilt to the Lord Jesus. And so there is this two-way imputation. God credits to us the perfect obedience and righteousness of Jesus, and he counts towards Jesus. He counts to Jesus' account our sin and our guilt. And for this reason, then, in Jesus, we are righteous and our sins are forgiven. And this truth that Paul is elucidating for us here, that the Spirit is um, revealing to us here in the Word, this truth is one of the most glorious and wonderful truths about the gospel that saves us. If you have come to Christ by faith, if you have stopped trying to make yourself good enough for God, if you have stopped trying to make yourself righteous enough for God, if you have stopped trying to make yourself a, uh, to establish your own righteousness that you can uh, bring to God on the basis of which you can be saved, if you have stopped all of that, because you recognize your sin and your guilt, you recognize you cannot atone for yourself. And if you have come to Jesus Christ humbly, by faith, looking to Him as your Savior. What this truth is declaring to us is that you are righteous, you are forgiven, you are just in the sight of God because of what Christ has done for you. What this means is that every sin that you have ever committed, every sin that you will commit, has been taken away from you forever. As the prophet Micah says, your sins have been cast into the depths of the sea. And not only that, because because God has imputed to you the righteousness of Christ, he considers you as though you have lived a perfectly righteous and holy life, even the life of Jesus himself. What freedom there is in this glorious truth of justification by faith alone. We are free from trying to make ourselves right with God. We are free from the anxiety of wondering if we will, if we will ever be right with God. It is a glorious truth. It means that there is nothing that you and I can add to what God, to what Christ has already done for us. It means that we don't have to be good enough. We don't have to be righteous enough for God. But already we have, given, we have been given this gift of everlasting life, the eternal forgiveness of our sins. And for that reason then, for that reason, because of what God has done for us already, we give thanks to Him. We praise Him. We worship Him. We serve Him out of gratitude for what He has done for us in Christ. Uh, David says that we are blessed in Christ. What that means is to be blessed. uh, There's a sense in which it means that we have received blessing from God, but also to be blessed means to be to be happy, to be supremely happy. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. And so because of this truth that in Christ you are justified by faith. You can not only be blessed, happy, but you can have peace with God, as Paul will go on to say in Romans. 
Uh, this truth also gives you comfort. It gives you hope. And you can be assured when you look to Jesus and know that for his sake, your sins are forgiven. You are eternally right with God. There is no more guilt. You can be assured when you look to Christ of the infinite love with which God has loved you in his son, Jesus, because he has given you this, this wonderful gift of righteousness, of justification in Jesus Christ. And so the first lesson that we learn from Abraham is that we are saved by Abraham's faith. Uh, the second lesson is this. We are united in Abraham's fatherhood. In verse 9, Paul asks this rhetorical question. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? In other words, is this blessing, is justification by faith alone, is this only for the Jews or is it also for the Gentiles? Now, Paul has already actually answered that question back in chapter 3, verse 30. He said that God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. But again, here Paul wants Abraham to testify, to do the talking for him, to prove his point. And so in verses 9 and 10, Paul asks this question. He says, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Uh, this sounds very much like a Sunday school question. Or I guess in, in the case of, of the Jews in Paul's day, a Sabbath school question. Um, was Abraham circumcised before or after he put his faith in the Lord and was counted righteous? And every Jewish child would know the answer to that, of course. He believed in the Lord before he was circumcised. In Genesis 15, Abraham believed the Lord. It was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't until some 14 years later in Genesis 17 that the Lord again spoke to Abraham and gave him the covenant or, or, or made his covenant with him and gave him circumcision. And Paul goes on to say then, because Abraham was circumcised after he had believed in the Lord for righteousness, that the circumcision was uh, the sign and the seal of the righteousness that was already his by faith. And so the mark of circumcision was a sign to Abraham that all of God's covenant promises were for him and for his descendants, including the promise of salvation that was based upon the righteousness of God that was imputed to him by faith. And that same mark of circumcision was a seal of this promise. In other words, by circumcision, by this mark that God had given to Abraham, uh, he authenticated, he validated, he guaranteed that his promise was true. And Paul says in verse 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12, that God gave circumcision to Abraham, not only in order to signify and seal that, that righteousness that was his by faith, but also to make him the father of all those who believe by faith in Christ. So because he was justified by faith before he was circumcised, Abraham is the father of every Gentile who believes in Christ and is therefore justified apart from Jewish circumcision. And because Abraham was justified as the one who was, or because Abraham was circumcised as the one who was justified by faith, he is the father of every Jew who was not only circumcised, but also walks in the steps of the faith of Abraham. And so as Paul says later in verse 16, Abraham is the father of, his, of us all. That's the point that he's making. Abraham is the father of Jew and Gentile, 
That is, all who put their hope and faith in Jesus alone for salvation. Now, in Paul's day, this reality that Abraham was the father of all who believe in Christ, Jew and Gentile, we know from his letters to the different churches, including this one here that he wrote wrote to Romans, we know that this was an extremely important truth that Paul wanted to communicate to the churches that he ministered to and served, that Jew and Gentile were one in Christ, that there weren't a special class of Christians, the Jews, who were somehow a little bit better than the Gentiles. Because it wasn't all obvious to many Jewish Christians at that time that Gentile converts to Christ were on the same spiritual footing as they were because they were the natural descendants of Abraham. They were the heirs of Abraham, the covenant, the promises were theirs and so on. And so it seemed to them, it would seem to them that naturally they had somehow a better status. And we can easily imagine that Gentile Christians in the church in Paul's day, that they could feel like second tier Christians because they had no natural claim to God's covenant as the Jews did. But Paul is saying here what he says elsewhere differently in other letters. In Christ Jesus, there is no Jew or Gentile. He is saying to Jews and Gentiles, that is those who belong to Jesus by faith, he is saying, you are both equally forgiven, you are both equally righteous, you are both equally the children of God, because you are both equally justified by faith alone, apart from works, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not hard to imagine a situation where this truth would be very relevant. It's not hard to imagine, for example, in the church in Rome, uh, perhaps an, an elderly Jewish man, a man who had lived a faithful and pious life according to the revelation that he had in Judaism. And when he came to hear the gospel, he believed in Christ. So here you have this man who had been a godly man his whole life. And perhaps sitting next to him in church was this Gentile convert. This pagan, uh, this man who had lived a debauched life, this man who was immersed in idolatry his entire life, and they're sitting together in the same church. And so Paul wants to say to both of them, you were both equal in the sight of God because of your faith in Christ. The Jew is no better, better off than the Gentile. They are both one in Christ and on the same footing. And it's not hard to translate that sort of thing into our church situation today. Because there are some in the church who grew up in the church, who grew up in a a, a good uh, Christian home, uh, those who never knew a time in their life when they did not trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation. And then there are others. There are those who come to the church, who come to Christ from a very ungodly background. Those who grew up not in a Christian family, who never went to church growing up, who became ensnared as they grew up in all kinds of sin and evil practices. And yet in Christ, nevertheless, we all enjoy the same grace. We all have received the same. We all believe in the same Savior. We all have the same righteousness in Christ, the same adoption, the same hope, the same love that God has for us. And I believe that this passage, for this reason, because of this truth, it has a special message of encouragement, especially for those who belong to the group that I described as those who are who were converted later in life, 
who came from a non-Christian background, who perhaps grew up practicing all kinds of, uh, of evil practices, lived in sin and unbelief. If you're that kind of person, or if that's your background, I should say, if, if, that's your, if that describes you, your background, before you came to Christ, you know how easy it is to feel out of place in the church, at least when you first start coming. You know it's easy to think that you don't really belong here. You don't really belong, belong here with all these good and righteous and church-going people. What am I doing here? I know that's the way it feels because that's my story. When I first started attending a church because I was being led by, by the Spirit to, to come to Christ by faith, coming out of a background of, of no Christianity, not growing up in a church home, never going to church, not having any friends, really, or acquaintances that were Christians, or very few at least. So when I first started coming to church, I felt definitely out of place. I felt at times, this isn't really where I belong. These really aren't my people. I don't really fit in here. And sometimes even now I find myself amazed, asking myself, am I really the pastor of a church? How in the world did that happen? Some of you may be wondering the same thing about me as well, but you keep that to yourself. But if because of your background or your sin, if you feel like you don't belong in the body of Christ, if you feel like this is not your place, then the message that this passage is saying to you this morning is this, that as a believer in Jesus Christ who has been justified by faith, apart from works, apart from your past, apart from any thing that you could point to as any kind of Christian upbringing or heritage, because you belong to Christ by faith, this is exactly the place where you belong. This is where you belong as a believer in Jesus Christ. You belong here because every other single person here is a sinner. And you belong here because you are cleansed and purified by the very same blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses and purifies all of us from all our sin. Have you sinned greatly in God's sight? So has every single one of us. We may look good, but God knows our hearts. And if you knew our hearts too, you would see, oh, I'm not that much worse than, than he is. Do you feel like you're unworthy of heaven? We all are. But your hope and my hope and the only hope for all of us is this. It's not your morality. It's not your good works. It's not the past that you bring into the church. But it's the obedience, the righteousness, the perfect life, the suffering, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for you, for you. And his righteousness that is yours simply by trusting in him as your savior. And so if you believe in Jesus as your Savior, the church is exactly where you belong. This is your home. This is your home, your spiritual home in this life. And you have a Savior in heaven who is preparing for you a home and glory for the life to come. And he's preparing that eternal home for all of the children of Abraham. That is all who have come to Jesus by faith. Let's pray.